Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. It's always a doorbell at just the right <laughs> If you do ever come late, and I know that was probably FedEx, um, just wait out in the foyer, just so that you don't come in while we're sitting, so it stays quiet in here as much as possible. Um, And I also wanted to say something, too, about bowing. And, you know, just to, to remind you that when the bell rings and we're finished sitting and we bow, um, that you're not bowing to me. And that what we're bowing to is this. Like this in capital letters. Um, what I contemplate when we're bowing, and I, and I mentioned this last week, is really the, the three pillars of this practice. Um, one is uh, Buddha, which is not this historical man necessarily, but also uh, symbolizes for all of us um, awareness. Awareness that's unbound. Awareness that's not conditioned by anything. And this always is like the fundamental paradox of this practice, is that awakening actually doesn't depend on anything for its existence, like awareness. So um, freedom is actually awareness that's just not clinging. It's not stuck. It hasn't settled. Um, and uh, by nature, this is how awareness functions. So when we're sitting even, and especially for those of you who've had some retreat practice, uh, after a while, even if you don't have very good technique, um, you'll notice that an awareness is just operating all the time uh, in the background. When the surface fluctuations of mind start to settle, there's like this natural resource there. But often we don't know it because we've covered it up with thinking about everything and analyzing things uh, top-down. And um, that gets you, you know, around. Um, but also it can really prevent healing 
And I would say, since there are so many artists in the room, that it really prevents creativity. Um, because you can't do creative work from the top down. Of course you need structure and sometimes you need outlines and so on. But you also need to be changed by what it is you're doing, which is uh, the surprises that happen when we uh, make film or we make books or we make paintings or we make babies. I don't know about teenagers, but... Um, and the Dharma, so this is awareness is the Buddha, and the Dharma is basically everything that awareness is aware of. Everything is Dharma. Um, but it's not like what we're usually aware of. It's like wisdom awareness. It's really seeing the fleeting nature of um, everything. Um, the empty nature or the boundless nature of everything. And Sangha is um, uh, the faith we get in maintaining a practice um, because of other sentient beings, especially humans. Yeah. And when I look around the room and I see some of you who I've known for, some of you, a really long time, um, and we've practiced together through thick and thin, you really start to see how this practice uh, helps us get in touch with that natural resource, that awareness, that non-clinging um, um, nature of awareness. Awareness that's not bound. And um, then I think we start to see that uh, our meditation practice of non-reactivity um, can't really be separate from um, uh, ethical conduct. Because when we're not as reactive, we're more in tune with what a situation requires. And we have the ability to allow space for a situation to really present itself and uh, to torture us until the right creative action shows up. Yeah. Um, but there have been two themes that have thrown a wrench into this theory that we've talked about over the past two weeks. Um, one is uh, what Jessica brought up last, last week, which is um, uh, having a kind of nonviolent attitude does not um, eliminate the hostility that we come up with uh, against in the world. And um, that sometimes a hostile response is actually what's called for. Maybe. <laughs> but this is what we really need to explore. And it brings up this, this sense that we really feel in Patanjali's teaching that he, and remember his definition, should I repeat his definition of nonviolence? Does everybody remember this from last week? His definition was uh, being firmly rooted in non-harm creates an atmosphere in which others can let go of their hostility. Imagine if countries did this. Being firmly grounded in non-violence creates an atmosphere in which others can let go of their hostility. It's atmospheric 
non-harm. But it presupposes that there will be violence, right? The word is not peace. It's non-violence, which means your culture, by definition, is imperfect and there will be harm. And this brings up a second theme that we kind of keep coming back to each week. I can't remember who brought it up last week, but just how, you know, I think for a lot of us who are lefties, you know, we have this idea that what our main focus is justice, you know, and this doesn't really agree with the Buddhist perspective. For Sometimes in left-wing politics, we have this idea that there is justice, and then when there's justice, there'll be peace. And from the Buddhist perspective, it's kind of reversed, actually. That the first thing we're cu- trying to cultivate is peace. First thing we're trying to cultivate is peace. And then we'll see about the justice part. First, peace. And so that's why I like to say that our practice is peacemaking practice. First in us, and then in others, and in our society. And it's amazing how different the world is when you can take care of your hostility. Has anybody noticed this? Like in their family, in their neighborhood? And usually Patanjali's list that we've been studying, it it starts with ahimsa, nonviolence, then satya, honesty. Actually, it's on your handout. And, and usually people kind of interpret this as like there's these stages of ethical conduct and then you get enlightened, you know, and as if it's some like ladder that you go up. But actually really to see that um, when you're attentive to your circumstances, you realize that you can't just do whatever you want. I used to think that this is what freedom was, just doing whatever you wanted. But then you realize like there's like a way to cook. And there's certain ingredients you don't mix. I just bought a blender, and my son is teaching me this. He's always like, you don't mix those. <laughs> I'm like, but you love... Anyways. He thinks that cacao powder can basically go in anything. In the morning. <laughs> um, there's a time to ring the bell. There's a time to take care of the body. There's a time where your whole practice should be months of body blitz. <laughs> and then there's when your practice has to be getting out into the street and really uh, helping others or making a really good home for your family or getting your family out of the house. <laughs> you know, as the Buddha says, a, a house gathers dust. Um, And so your response to what's arising in any situation nullifies the the strength of karma, the strength of previous actions. Um, But it doesn't nullify circumstances. And this is what I want to explore a little bit tonight. Um, Yes? Sorry, what does nullify mean? Eliminate. Oh. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if we were peaceful inside and everything else was peaceful? <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure. Um, so that every moment 
of your life, your conduct is the whole path. And I think Patanjali, like the Buddha, is trying to do this. They're trying to collapse practice and path as exactly the same thing. Every moment on this path is the whole practice, right there. And how you conduct yourself is how you express interconnectedness or intimacy. And um, it doesn't give us one solution in a situation. It actually multiplies possibilities. Um, Some of you may have seen the New Yorker, this issue with the picture of the Dalai Lama on the treadmill. And uh, he really is on a treadmill right now. Um, The problem is it's going a bit faster than he can handle, I think, because there's a lot of tension building up in Tibet because a lot of young people feel that his stance of nonviolence is actually passivity. And that Tibet is disappearing under the Chinese. And as excellent as the Dalai Lama's communication skills and listening skills are, and his firm stance around nonviolence, uh, people have felt that his stance has not been strong enough. And um, there are many Tibetans who feel that as wonderful as a spiritual leader he is, they're kind of waiting for things to shift um, in Tibetan leadership. Um, so that people uh, can take action um, because they feel that it's kind of slipped. And and I think this is the sort of, this is the tension that looking at our lives ethically brings up. Um, And it doesn't just get rid of that. I always think if you have a clean moral conscience, you do not understand karma. (laughs) Because if the only thing we're clarifying is our motivation we realize that we can't cling to the outcome of our actions, right? You can't control the outcome of your actions. And so just to kind of um, uh, illuminate this, I thought we would work with a story from the Pali Canon. Some of you might know it. It's a a famous story. Um, uh, It's about someone whose first name was Ahimsaka, which of course has the root Ahimsa in it. Um, and um, it's said that when he was born, uh, all of the weapons on earth um, glittered for a moment uh, at the moment of his birth. And uh, in other words, anyone who was clairvoyant saw that this person was trouble. And um, I won't tell you the whole story about how it happened, but he eventually became... Uh, like a highway robber. Um, and his uh, uh, violence became more and more intense until he started murdering people. And his goal was to get 200 fingers, which is what, a thousand people? Uh, is that right? 20? I, I just want you to pay attention. <laughs> um, So, um, he's going and murdering people, and after he murders them, he takes uh, their fingers and he cuts them off, and he puts them on a garland, which is where he gets the name Angali Mala later on in his life, which is basically means a garland of fingers. And uh, 
At first he used to hang the fingers on a garland from trees, but then the birds would come and eat them. So then he decided to make a garland around his neck of the fingers of everyone who he's murdered. And um, you can picture this, right? And uh, actually, I don't want to get academic on you, but this is actually this story also has roots in ancient tantric practices. Um, and some people say this story, because it's in the Pali Canon, is actually one of the earliest. And I'm not giving you the whole story, but it's actually one of the earliest examples of tantric practice. Um, but I won't get too far into that. But that's a footnote you can uh, explore on your own. That would be a good PhD. Um, but anyway, so he's this murderer. He's on the road. And then people won't come out of their villages. So he starts going into villages, uh, getting people. doesn't matter who they are, how old they are, babies, the elderly. He murders them and he takes their fingers and adds them to his garland um, around his neck. And if you ever see images of this, you know he's got this all these fingers hanging from his neck and just blood pouring down him and just this face, you know. And um, eventually um, the king goes after him and when his mother hears that the king is coming after him, his mother decides to go after him. And she finds him in the forest on a small path and she looks him in the eye and the look in his eye is murder. And he starts coming towards her to kill her. And just as he's coming towards her, the Buddha shows up. It's so good. <laughs> and then he decides that he's going to kill the Buddha instead of his mother. So you, you can tell, like, he's just, he's gone, right? He's gone. And we would say that somebody like this, there's no, no hope, of course. But the Buddha shows up. And you can see, like, with underwear that are red and a cape. And, um, and then, so the Buddha shows up. And then he starts running towards the Buddha. And the Buddha turns around. And instead of running away, he starts practicing walking meditation. So when he steps, he inhales and exhales and he walks as slow as his breathing and no matter how fast um, he is chased Angulimala can't catch him because he's running can you picture this? so Angulimala is running as fast as he can after the Buddha and the Buddha is walking slow and no matter how fast he runs he can't catch up to the Buddha and then the Buddha stops and turns to him and looks him in the eye and says, I've stopped, can you? It's like the best line. <laughs> I've stopped, can you? And it stops him. Could you imagine this? It's like when one addict is working, who's recovered is working with another addict and says this, this line. This is a line that's used in healing work. You know, I've stopped. Can you? And, and I think, and what I love about this, it just happens in this magical moment of Angulimala trying to catch the Buddha. You know, and he just stops. Says, "I've stopped. Can you?" And then um, Angulimala stops and starts practicing with the Buddha. 
And um, the Buddha gives him all kinds of work. One, one, of the, one of the things the Buddha teaches him how to do is to be with pregnant women. And um, eventually, uh, actually, Angulimala comes up with a prayer that he gives to pregnant women to ease their fear during pregnancy. Um, it's called the Angulimala Parita. And actually, in Theravadan countries, it's a prayer that's still used during pregnancy that a priest will give to, to a woman uh, during labor to help ease her fear. And um, there's so much more of the story I want to tell, but we'll be here all night. But, or we could just be here all night and explore this. But, but basically, um, he ends up becoming enlightened. He becomes a monk. He starts teaching. And then, uh, eventually, his past catches up with him. And he goes into a village where some people realizes, realize that he, is, he was the murderer. Even though now he's a monk, he's clean-shaven and so on, that he was a murderer, and they stone him to death. They stone him to death. And that sounds like a fine, you know, film nowadays. But in the Pali Canon, this is a really important teaching. Because what it shows is that somebody can be enlightened and not free of karma. I have a friend who lived in an ashram in India, and it came out that her teacher was sleeping with, you know, everyone in the sangha, basically. And when I asked her about it, she said, oh, well, you know, he's reached samadhi, so he doesn't have karma anymore. I remember thinking, have you ever heard of the Angulimala Sutta? <laughs> um, and this is a really interesting teaching, and, 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 you know, really let this sink in. That even in enlightenment or liberation, there is still delusion. Um, or another way of saying it, there is still karma. You know, some of you might know, if you, I know some of you are studying the Pali Canon right now, that, you know, the Buddha suffered from stomach aches. He had really bad stomach aches during his life and also some back pain. But he had what we would probably call ulcers. And it happens all through his career. And, you know, that's another place where you get this sense of a person who's a, awake and yet the sangskaras or the previous habits of body and mind from past lives or genetics or whatever language you want to use still come through us. And they don't stop in the same way that although we can work with the hostility in us, the hostility of the world does not stop. It doesn't come to an end. All we can do is work with it inside of us. And then how we become changes our relationship to our society. And this is the root of non-harming, is creating an atmosphere of non-violence. Does this make sense? Yeah. Any comments before I keep going? Um, well, on that basis, is there any place for a healthy expression of anger under circumstances of being threatened, whether it's physically, emotionally, psychologically, or whatever, on the basis of this discussion around him? Yeah. I mean, I mean. As opposed to the word. Hostility, which sort yeah. of angry, 
anger as a healthy expression. Yeah. 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 But I think we have to be careful. Yeah. Um, I think anger is something that clues us in to imbalance. Um, usually anger, when it's not expressed, shows up as depression. And usually anger, when it's overexpressed, just kind of bulldozes through situations or people. Um, and so we need to really learn, as we explored last week, how to take care of our anger. How to really take care of it and how to really get into it. But last week we talked about Thich Nhat Hanh's rule about anger, which is when you're angry, not to do or say anything. And to first do walking meditation. Um, I have a friend who spent some time with him in Plum Village in France a couple of years ago, and Thich Nhat Hanh said, when you're angry, you should do sun salutations by yourself until you're tired. And then you can feel something. So yes, anger is also, it's often a motivator. Um, but we have to be careful, like righteous anger. We have to be careful with this. So the, the goal of anger is to take action that does not have the intention to cause harm. So really for those of us who, who operate out of anger sometimes or injustice, to take care of our anger so that our actions still have communication in them. So we can still listen well, to what yeah, others have to say. something is happening that is threatening, mm -hmm. not, not something necessarily severe, but let's say someone else is doing something that doesn't feel right. Yeah. I think there's a call to act upon that as yes. opposed to not act upon it. There's a call to respond yes. to the situation yes. to, to create a sort of healthy boundary around the situation. Yeah. And I think it can be evoked out of a place of anger, but not necessarily expressed through hostility. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Laurie? Yeah, no, um, I just find it hard to apply to what happened to the G20 here in uh -huh. Toronto because, you know, there were a number of people within this group who were involved. Yeah. And, like, I don't know about anybody else, but it was impossible yeah. not to be angry. Uh -huh. And I'm just uh -huh. not sure in that circumstance. Not to be angry. Not to just be angry about what was going on, what we were seeing and witnessing. Yeah. Yeah. And and trying to find an appropriate response to that yeah. was, for me, it was impossible. Yeah. And not, I mean, yeah. I think anger had a place there. Yeah. Well, this will be something to talk to the monks about. Yeah. Um, because I would say one of the things that the Burmese have taught activists is that real nonviolence takes discipline. It really takes discipline. And um, the other thing that um, we've learned from Burma, I think, is that a lot of the people who um, um, put their bodies on the line feel like um, it was a waste and feel like they didn't get things done. And anybody who's you know, sat in front of a fence or stood up to the police, you know that sometimes you feel like what you're doing is right, 
Sometimes what you're doing is boring. Sometimes what you're doing, what is, how is it going to change anything? But one thing does not change anything. It's a whole sequence of things that starts to affect change. So we also can't just look at one action, especially like with regards to the G20, and say, oh yeah, this is going to change. But from that place of anger, we need to take care of our anger and put it to creative use and to do something and to really do something, especially because uh, in a city like Toronto, and you know, I don't want to get into a whole discussion about the G G and G20, but you know, especially in a city like Toronto, you know, so many of the issues that are being um, uh, brought up and, and argued about, hopefully, um, are affecting places in the world far away from here. You know, we can't see the consequences of a little, you know, shipping uranium away from Saskatchewan. Um, we can't see all the consequences of that. So I think that also can bring up some anger, too. And these are all the different kinds of anger that we need to take care of. But then the other side of it is to not do anything. You know, oh, I'm taking care of my anger and I'm just going to hang out at the spa today. Or, you know, G20 is happening, let's get out of town. You know, um, is also a kind of violence. Dante said this, you know, that um, there's a place reserved in hell for people who remain passive in times of need. Yeah. With the, the anger, I, I find that there's a lot of sadness behind it. Uh -huh. So it's well, you know, feeling the sadness and then moving through that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just to sum up, I know not everyone was here last week, but last week one of the things we talked about is how in Buddhist psychology, anger is considered an emotion. And that emotions are considered reactions, or what Freud would call reaction formations, to feelings. So that anger is actually in a separate category than feelings. And it's actually considered a reaction to feeling. And I, I really sense this, like... When I'm angry, I don't really feel anything. Although it's physical, I don't actually feel anything. And secondly, when we're not feeling a lot, our viewpoint becomes very singular. I'm right when I'm angry, and you're wrong. Or I'm a victim, and you're a perpetrator. And so our viewpoint is so singular. And when we feel something, we can multiply our viewpoints. We can put ourselves in different, in different shoes. Like when the Dalai Lama always says, my friend's the Chinese. My friend's the enemy, he says sometimes. My friend's the enemy. Romy. Hmm, I feel like um, anger, and maybe it's the same, maybe it's related to how you're describing it, but I actually feel like anger is sort of the reaction to um, more feeling than, than is manageable. Yeah. Or born in the yeah. moment and not addressing those, you know, not being able to get to that leads to the anger and not dealing with anger then um, feels this kind of despair. Um, so there's a disconnection, but I certainly feel 
Yeah. So much feeling. Yeah. And it's like bigger than anything. Uh huh. Do you want to respond? Mm-hmm. Not particularly to oh. that. But maybe this helps in a way. Yeah. Sometimes I, I think that when we talk about anger, we really go into the anger when, when it's already, we think about this anger that it's, we're already in the rage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and obviously when you're there, it's very, I think so, it's very hard to even picture coming down yeah. and slowing it down. Yeah. Uh, but it's recognizable, very recognizable. Yeah. I think that was, what's less recognizable is little reactions that eventually lead to greater anger. So for example, today as we were sitting, there were so many little noises and so many little interruptions and I could see myself like this movement of, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and I think that's what, I don't know, you can talk to this, but that's what you mean when you say that nonviolence requires discipline because you begin discipline yourself in these very little ways, yeah, uh, to catch yourself before the reaction, yeah, uh, or to feel whatever the body is feeling before yeah. the story begins. Oh, yeah. why can people don't stay still? And you know, yeah. all the, that generates even more exactly. sensation, more anger, and yes, it, it, it grows it up. Yes, so it's it's maybe easier to look at it from that perspective that when you're already in the, in the full, yeah. uh, in a full rage. Or yeah, with your whole body. Yeah, yeah Malcolm Gladwell has this, this line that I, I just came across, that the revolution will not be twittered. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a wonderful article about how, you know, although Twitter can make some social change, at the end of the day, we, you have to put your body there. And that's where the discipline comes in. But I, I want to kind of go deeper because, you know, the Buddha has something to say about this, and, and I know we all do, but I, I just want you to hear what the Buddha says. So this is from the Maha Asapura Sutta, which is from the Majjhima It's uh, section 39, if you want to look it up when you do your PhD. Um, so uh, the Buddha is in the Angas, which is a place, and uh, he meets a group of people, and he says to them, Um, and he's kind of stirring them a little bit. He says, contemplative contemplatives. Um, That is how people perceive you. And when asked, what are you? You claim you are contemplative. So with this being your designation and this your claim, this is how you should live. Isn't that good? If you call yourself a contemplative, then this is how you should live. And of course they say, well, well, how do we do that? And the first thing he says, which relates to what we're saying, is you should be endowed with a deep sense of conscience and concern. Of conscience and concern. This may echo the story that um, you may have heard of the Buddha with his son when his son uh, tells a lie and the Buddha says, how do you feel? And he says, bad. And the Buddha says, good. (laughs) Because if you didn't feel bad, I would be concerned. So listen, that's the Buddha's first teaching for being a contemplative, is a deep sense of conscience and concern. A sense that 
your consequences and the consequences of the institutions, governments, countries, families, cities around us uh, create concern and imbalance. This is first teaching for being a contemplative, which is, I think, the tension that we're talking about. Um, He actually divides us into two sections. He calls these the guardians of the world. Number one is an inner sense of being uncomfortable. An inner sense when you see imbalance to become uncomfortable, to feel uncomfortable. And number two, that consequences of your actions should matter to you. So it's not that you feel something and become uncomfortable and then how you respond doesn't matter. Punch someone in the face or whatever but that how you respond to your concern should start to matter to you. Um, number two, purity of conduct. Uh, conduct. Uh, so he has three. Uh, bodily, so how you conduct yourself with your body. Number two, how you conduct yourself with speech, verbal conduct. And number three, livelihood. And he has all kinds of ideas about your livelihood. Um, you shouldn't uh, use money in a way that touches any place where there is arms trading. Good luck. <laughs> so your money should not come into contact with any other livelihood where there's trading in arms. Imagine if we could apply this to our... I mean, just take these principles and apply them to our political economic realities here. Number two is going to floor you. (laughs) Do you want to hear it? (laughs) Uh, Not having debt. How modern... Margaret Atwood would love this. Not having debt. Not living in debt. And some of you might know that actually that's one of the really incredible things about a lot of the Buddhist institutions in the United States including like IMS, is that they built their institutions without any debt. I mean, some would argue that you can do that in New England, um, where there's a philanthropic culture. But not having debt. I mean, I think nowadays we don't even think of having a business without having a line of credit. Um, Number three, restraint of the senses. So taking care of our senses... So they're not always going after things. This is how to live as a contemplative. Number four, moderation when eating. And one of the instructions for this is only eating when you're hungry. Could you imagine this? (laughs) Only eating when you're hungry. Um, Considering it appropriately... Take food not playfully and not for intoxication, not for putting on bulk or for beautification, but just for the healthy continuance of this body and supporting a holy life. Thinking, I will work with feelings of hunger and not create unnecessary feelings from overeating. Think about all the unnecessary feelings we have to work with from overeating. This is, by the way, 2,500 years ago, Iron Age India. I mean, he's going right to the heart of um, 
Next, wakefulness. And then he gives certain times of the day where he wants you to practice wakefulness. And he divides it like from 10 p.m. until midnight. I'm not going to get into it all now. But getting to know all your different states of tiredness so that when they arise, you know how to work with them. And I can just picture Martin Luther King at different churches in the United States before some of the marches going through this list. Um, Back in the day before Twitter, when people would actually get together and train, learn discipline for protest. They didn't just go march. They they trained at the churches. He he was creating a peacemaking army. Um, Mindfulness and alertness, most of us know that. Abandoning the hindrances, most of you know that. Um, Learning the four jhanas, so learning deep states of concentration. And the last is knowing the three characteristics. One, dukkha that there is going to be suffering. To fully know that there will be suffering. Or as Stephen Batchelor translated, life's a bummer. (laughs) Uh, Number two, impermanence. He didn't really. Anyway. Impermanence. uh, That everything is changing. And the main teaching about that is that Because everything's changing, when you try and fix your life and make it permanent, you create dukkha. So the two are tied together. And number three, um, anatman, that, that nothing has a fixed substantiality. That everything you feel, everything you think, everything you observe is changing. And not only is it changing, it's interdependent with so many other things, so that it's, it's boundless. It doesn't have what in Western philosophy we call essentialism. It doesn't have an essential, abiding, eternal um, thingness. And when you think it does, there's dukkha. Life becomes a bummer. It's so good, I love it. Um, And the way I've been translating dukkha lately is the inability to be content. The inability to be content. So, that's the Buddha's teaching on how to live as a contemplative. And it's identical um, to his teachings on meditation practice. It's identical to his teachings on ethics. And you can see how what he's doing is he's, he's always pressing practice and a path together. Your life and your practice as one and not separating them. And that's why we came up with this precepts course. is So that we can see that the yoga postures are helpful for certain activities. Meditation's helpful uh, for certain parts of our lives. But then also to really look at our lives through the lens of ethics. Through the lens of ethics and to see what happens when we do that. So that our practice and our life are glued together. And I think one of the things it brings up is we start to see places in our life where we're really committed to a kind of ethical, interdependent, sustainable way of living. And then other areas of our life where we're not 
Or maybe we're doing amazing social action here and we're just not taking care of ourselves. Or the other way around. I mean, we all have different imbalances in certain ways. And I remember when I was really studying these teachings early on, I was always amazed that they all started talking about ethics. Whereas in Western psychology, we never really think that ethics is something to even explore um, when we're looking at our lives. Yeah. So, before I finish, are there any comments, questions? This topic is supposed to be a little uncomfortable because it's, it's like, it's not telling you what you should do, but offering some guidelines. Yes. Do you think contemporary Buddhism is moving more towards social action? Because I don't think traditionally it's been about social action. And it seems it's more and more that maybe it's moving in that direction. Yes. I, I, I think that... Uh, the great gift of the coming together of Buddhism and North America, especially, is um, the, the, the integration of social engagement and, um, and practice. And I don't think you can say that about Asian Buddhism. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, incredible examples of great social action in India and Sri Lanka and um, in Thailand. Um, but uh, not like what's starting to happen here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, some of you know I've been away a lot, and one of the things I've been doing while I've been away, aside, uh, you know, publicly on the website, it looks like I've been teaching in all these places. But another thing is I've been meeting with a lot of people, and I've been making a real effort to meet young Buddhist teachers, um, because um, the. The thriving Buddhist sanghas that I'm seeing now are um, happening in small urban environments. They're not happening at retreat centers. Um, and you see large numbers, like I was at the Interdependence Project, some of you know, in the Bowery in New York City, run by a, a young guy in his 20s named Ethan Nickturn. And um, uh, their work is amazing. And it's basically getting a lot of people together and studying like what we're doing. Um, but then also going on retreats, um, making sure people know the texts, taking precepts, um, taking refuge. Um, and uh, it's really, really inspiring. And then you start meeting the people who go there and they're all doing fantastic work. Uh, Koshin, who runs the Zen Center for Contemplative Care, Basically, some Zen students who said, you know, our work could be really great in hospitals. Let's start working with people who are working in hospitals. And now they're, they've got uh, all 28 units at Beth Israel Hospital in New York City are filled with monks. Uh, Zen students from the village Zendo who have, you know, shaved heads. and um, They're in every single ward in the Beth Israel Hospital. Um, not to mention the work they're doing at Sing Sing. I mean, all over the place. So I, I think that um, uh, most people who are now getting interested in the Dharma uh, can't separate taking care of themselves from taking care of the world. Um, and then there are a lot of people who are out there trying to take care of the world, 
but haven't connected that with internal alignment. Yeah. Which is, you know, this whole, all of us. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a PhD in philosophy and specifically moral theory. Uh-huh. So how do you view, in terms of the ethical, what do you view the, the role of intellect yeah. in, in ethics? Because from the way you describe it, it was sort of more a matter of perception of what the right action is. Yeah. Creative action. But yeah. in philosophy, traditionally, it's been more a matter of using intellect to try to understand different moral principles and factors yeah. and so on. Well, I think intellect's really important, but I think it's just one tool. So I think we need an ability to, to look at something intellectually and then be able to suspend what we've concluded and look at it again and look at it again and look at it again. Um, you can't get rid of a viewpoint, but you can multiply viewpoints. And you can only do that with spaciousness. And so the, the, the term that we often use here is not knowing. But people sometimes take that as like not knowing anything. Um, like when I get in an airplane, I, I want my pilot to practice knowing, <laughs> you know, or a surgeon to practice. But when things go wrong, you want them to have a combination of knowing and really being attentive to what's going on in a situation at the same time. So there's a role for the intellect, and there's a way of learning how to take the intellect and just uh, stretch it out or put it away altogether. Um, but sometimes when our only tool is the intellect, we can't really let it go. We can only let it go and head into another intellectual idea, and then another. I remember teaching a group of uh, university students um, a day of meditation. And one person said to me at the end, who was doing his PhD, oh, I'm so much more relaxed, I was only juggling about three ideas. <laughs> you know. So being able to drop that, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to share or ask your perspective on something. So a number of years ago, I was spending a lot of time reading uh, Prajnaparamita Sutra uh-huh. when, and uh, doing a lot of meditation on emptiness. Yeah. Um, and that was my main practice. Yeah. And then uh, two years ago, uh, like the whole of the year, I was really angry because yeah. I was feeling that in some ways my practice was contributing in a way that was promoting non-action. Uh-huh. Uh, I was seeing things, you know, informally, you know, like without any form, not, not reacting to things, yeah. dissolving the barrier between what causes you to act and understanding action. Yes. Just in a nutshell. Yes. And so my life was almost reaching a feeling stagnation. Sure. And and I was fighting this with, with Buddhist ideas, even the institution that I was yeah. the people with the institution that I was with, that was somehow encouraging stagnation. Don't react, that's bad. Yeah. And and, and it, I, I was like stuck. So I was angry for like all of two thousand and eight. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and my practice uh, which was Practice, um, is, is, so I was I was using that as a tool yeah. to understand my own energy yes. in terms of using anger to transform my life. But yeah, I was I guess what I'm saying is I was just challenging this whole. It just feels like the Buddha is is saying 
don't act, uh, don't cling, don't reach out for things. And it's just like, yeah. but you have to. Like, I, I don't know where the Buddha talks like that. The, I mean, here the Buddha is giving, is telling you about how to conduct your life. Nowhere is he saying, don't react to things or don't do anything. But you did say that when you're angry, don't do or say anything. Take care of your anger. Okay. And then the next line is, and meditate on the person you think you're angry at. But it's kind of like not doing anything. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I learn how to take care of my anger, there's a lot of doing there. <laughs> yeah. And secondly, about the Heart Sutra, the last section of the Heart Sutra is... Uh, when you can see that everything is boundless, then the walls of the mind come down and it's the end of fear. And then to activate the Heart Sutra. The last section of the Heart Sutra is then an activate the Heart Sutra. In other words, take this teaching and activate it. Action. What does that mean? It means go for it, man. Roll up your sleeves and like, what's in front of you? Go to work. It's kind of like Freud, you know? It's like if you can't solve your neurosis, go to work. It's so Austrian, you know? <laughs> so Jewish, actually. But, you know, I'm exaggerating here, but I think if you're studying the Heart Sutra, you need to retranslate the word emptiness as boundlessness. And actually chant the Heart Sutra. Try this tonight. Um, with the word boundlessness instead of emptiness. Because I think the first mistake of the Heart Sutra is how we think of the word empty. Uh, emptiness means empty of, an in, of, a, of a local self. Everything's boundless. Totally interconnected. And when you see that, um, because I think the Heart Sutra is a teaching on the end of fear, is when you see how things are interconnected, you bring fear to an end. How do you bring fear to an end? It says by letting go of walls of the mind. And then what do you do? It says then activate it. And it's the same as Patanjali. Well, how? Well, that's for you to decide depending on the circumstances you're in. In other words, like get into your life. As opposed to like, I'm not attached. So I'm just going to let everything... It's like watching a film and I'm not going to be affected. Yes. This will be the last last comment. Um, it's kind of a question, but maybe it's too broad. But it seems like it, I've been studying the sutras and everything so much, and yeah. practicing so much in the past year. Yeah. And the more the walls my come, the more my walls come down, and the more bound, the more I meditate on boundlessness. Yeah. The more my fears are actually activated. Yeah. It's the opposite. How would you recommend? Like the more things aren't delineated, the more interconnected, yeah. the more everything kind of just—it makes me yeah. like it's fear. It, it causes fear. Yeah. Well, I think there's some good kinds of fear. They say like an, a human without fear is a dead human. <laughs> a rabbit. Imagine a rabbit without fear. Um. I think first of all, there's a good kind of fear, which is uh, being able to see the fear of an ego that's just trying to hold on. Mm-hmm. And being able to really see that and like really know that. And um, I think a lot of fear is the fear of fear. 
we sense a little fear and then we fear that we're feeling fear and then there's more fear it's kind of like this weird feedback loop and then I think the other kind of fear is a little bit like what the Buddha is saying is that you should have a conscience and it should stress you out and you should look around you know I've been on airplanes a lot and you know sometimes the views from airplanes and you look around at um, what we're doing to the planet from an airplane window and then you realize but you're on an airplane and then for me like fear comes up like what is going on what, what can I do you know but because of karma it doesn't become nihilistic because what, what tempers nihilism is karma is that your actions matter tell your teenagers this you know you can't just paint your room black and listen to Nick Cave all day you have to like that, that is an action and that's what you're contributing you know? so I think this is how we work with fear just like anger you really get to know it and in getting to know it you take care of it and then it doesn't have such a purchase on you and that takes discipline it takes discipline you can't just like make it happen philosophically it doesn't work yeah. So, like, not to make fear an enemy. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So many good comments and questions. I hope if there's anything that you walk away from this talk tonight with it's to remember that the Buddha had ulcers <laughs> really like to let that in so like and to see that you know his response to ulcers was to teach he had a teaching career for like 50 years you know it's a lot longer than Jesus I don't know if Jesus had ulcers. I'm not sure. <laughs> but like the the Buddha, like there was so many times in his life where he was really stressed out. There were times where his commun he got in arguments with his community and walked away because he felt like they just didn't understand him. When he was dying, he was in so much pain that he had to go into states of concentration because he was suffering. So this idea that like when you get enlightened you stop feeling things or the world becomes easier or menopause ends or whatever is just totally absurd some of our bodies like we have to take care of our bodies because they're unconsciously influencing how we are because we're in pain and we don't know how to deal with it grief and and loss and trauma we haven't worked with how many of people's careers are unconsciously motivated by feelings of inadequacy that they haven't learned how to take care of and then we become self-centered and exhausted by our addictions and then we can't affect real change in the world the Buddha taught a public pro-social path he taught a, a path that, that cultivates pro-social attitudes and that constantly focuses on interdependence constantly interdependence in your body and in the body politic 
And he never talks about renunciation from action. He only talks about renouncing self-centered views in service of action. Of act- I'm an action kind of guy. You know? And I've never met a monk, even, who's not totally engaged in their community. And so we have to get out of this colonial view of yogis in caves. That's, that's a modern interpretation and we have to get out of this Herman Hess version of the Buddha and really see as the Buddha as someone who was trying to build cities and create flourishing communities. An enlightened citizenry. Is that a word, citizenry? Yeah. Citizenship. Enlightened citizenship. And just to remind you of Thich Nhat Hanh's statement this summer that the next Buddha is a Sangha. The next Buddha is not going to be found in some cave in Mount Kailash. This is the next Buddha. The interdependence project in New York City is the next Buddha. Upaya in Santa Fe is the next Buddha. Robert Thurman and his family at the Tibet House, they're Buddhas. And so all of you on your sticky mats, and like, like the Jews and the Christians, they're feeding more people. The Catholics are doing much better work connecting with communities so far than us. And so this will be the maturation of our um, process. And it's not going to happen on Twitter. It's going to happen with your whole body and Twitter. <laughs> Let's finish chanting. <laughs>